everybody. Come and find your seat again for me. Great to see you all. Um, a couple of things. Did everybody grab a lollipop? Yeah, I'm seeing some lollipops out there. That's good. Uh, you don't have to give to go and grab one, by the way, just to clarify that. Some of you give online and anytime you like go and grab a lollipop, uh, they're, all, they're all just for you. Um, a couple of things. Now, I, I don't often make a mistake. About once every two years, uh, one happens. And uh, this morning, one's happened. Um, so, so apparently, there were supposed to be some sign-up sheets uh, to volunteer for the Christ Central Conference. It was my job to let Mags know that we needed sign-up sheets at the back. And she forgot to tell me that I needed to remind her of it. So <laughs> something happened that went wrong. It was probably my fault. So it wasn't Ginny's fault. It wasn't Mag's fault, apparently. It was my fault. So, um, But next week, um, Mag's next week, can we have some sign-up sheets at the back for the Christ Central Conference? So you can sign up for the next week. It gives you a whole week to pray about it. It's good. Um, I just want to quickly say something. Actually, uh, it's not a significant date for you guys, I guess, but it has been for me in that this year, this week, uh, for me, I've hit a year since I've been here, uh, working here. And uh, yeah, for some of you thinking, wow, only a year. It feels like you've been here forever. Um, and um, it was significant for me, actually. And just being in the room this morning, actually worshiping with you guys, I just want to thank all of you. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed this past year of my life. It hasn't been, um, it's been hard at times, like anybody's life is hard, but um, I'm just so honored and privileged to be here with you. Um, we all are, our whole family is. We love you and we love how you love us. Um, and you've been so open and welcoming to us um, in, in the role that we're in and open to prayer, and I've sat with some of you and talked about your marriages, and I've prayed with so many of you, and you've shared your lives with me, and in that, you know, we're trying to follow Christ together, aren't we? And I just want to thank every single one of you um, for just welcoming us. It's been such a wonderful year for us as a family, um, and we're just praying for many more, aren't we? We're praying for many more to join this family and, and to follow Jesus with us, so... I uh, just want to say that. Okay, so that's a complete side note. Uh, this week, uh, I'm picking right up from where Graham left off last week. And if you remember last week, uh, was Pentecost. I know I'm just telling you what you already remember. Um, but Pentecost and tongues of fire came on the disciples in the upper room. And it spilled out into the streets. And, and the best explanation that people could come up with was, wow, it looks like they're drunk. Um, you know, that, that was the best thing that they could use to describe what had happened, but it, they weren't drunk, and we're going to talk about it in just a little bit, but, but it was this incredible moment. And remembering what they looked like when the Holy Spirit came, uh, the, the, the Israelite nation had been through two uh, exiles in their, in their history. There was the Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile. And what happened as a result of that is that people from, from Israel had lived all over the world. They literally lived all over the known world. And what they would do is, is these festivals, so like the Pentecost festival, which is kind of like a harvest festival, they would come back to Jerusalem, back to Zion, the holy city, and they would, they would celebrate Pentecost there as a nation. But you've got to think, a lot of these people never grew up in Israel. They grew up um, in Babylon or, you know, far reaches of Greece. And they came into this with, with 
actually with a different language. So, so the fact that these people from Galilee and Judea, uh, they, they could speak languages that they'd never heard before, and they would, hadn't been able to speak them one minute ago, but the Holy Spirit had come and enabled them to do incredible things. And, and there was this outpouring of praise and worship in all different languages from all over the world. And people who had traveled to Jerusalem, who didn't live there, who had a different native language because of where they'd grown up, all of a sudden going, how do they know our language? How is this possible? Um, so that's what happened. And we're going to pick right up from there what happens next. Um, two things to tell you about. One is, is that we're going to pray before we go into Scripture. So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Um, now, this is quite a long scripture, and if I'm being honest with you, I tried several times to think of ways to not include the whole scripture, um, but I couldn't. I couldn't think of one, because it's too good to split up. Um, it's, it doesn't do it justice if you kind of divide it and take things out. So we're just going to read the whole thing together, but that's okay, because you've all got a lollipop, you're all feeling comfortable, everybody's been for a little tinkle, so we're all good, aren't we, Yeah. Okay, so we're going to read Acts chapter 2. For those who don't have the Bible, it's going to come up on the screen. Uh, verses 14 to 36. Uh, oh, I need to pray first. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that when we allow you to speak to us, when we have open hearts, that the word of God changes our lives. Father, would we put <laughs> um, authority in your words? Would we allow you to speak to us uh, and Lord, give you, give you room to speak this morning. Father, I just pray for everybody in the room. I just thank you for each and every person in the room. And I just pray this morning that they would have an encounter with you that changes them. Yeah, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay. Acts chapter 2, 14 to 36. It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, Remember, fellow Jews, people who live out there, and there's people who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will, will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by his miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy one see decay. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died, was buried, and his tomb is here today. But he was a prophet and knew God. God had promised him an oath that he would, have, have, would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he, re- he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and <laughs> has poured out, out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Quite a a sermon, isn't it? (laughs) Um, John pointed out this morning, I'm kind of doing a sermon on a sermon this morning. It's a little bit like a a dream within a dream sort of thing, you know. But but preaching is hard. Um, I don't know if anybody's uh, ever had a go preaching in the room or speaking from the front teaching. It can be quite a daunting thing, can't it? I don't really know of anybody who does really, really, really well on their first go. This is a pretty good job right here. <laughs> in fact, that's it. It's a fantastic job. Um, and it's his first ever sermon. It's Peter's first ever sermon. My first sermon um, the first time I was asked to speak was at my church. I became a believer at in Redcar Baptist Church, uh, East Cleveland Baptist. And I don't really remember much about it other than I spent a really long time sharing an analogy on some sheep. And I don't remember anything other than that. So it kind of been great. Um, imagine how bad it was for people in the room. Uh, the, the worst story I've ever read, though, was about a young man who was asked to speak at his, his church. And um, he was newly married and, uh, and he was just a young man. He'd never spoken before, and he was asked if he would teach on someone, and he took on the challenge. He prepared really well. He had a great sermon, he thought, lined up. And um, the night before, though, he'd had some, uh, something to eat, uh, and he thought, oh, it just tasted a bit off. Anyway, the next morning, he's thinking, oh, no, my stomach just feels a bit a bit funny. And he stood up there, he gets up to speak and he's thinking, oh no, I, I just don't feel right. My stomach just feels a bit off. And as he stood up there speaking, he's thinking, oh, it's getting worse and worse. And he does really well. He does really well speaking. He managed to stick to his notes and, um, and he gets all the way through. He prays, to, he prays at the end and he's just thinking, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get to the toilet as fast as I can. And the worship team is, is up and, and doing a song. He runs out the door, gets into the toilet, he vomits, sorry for the graphic analogy, he vomits and he's like, oh, that feels so much better. Literally at that moment, his wife walks into the toilets and goes, your microphone is still on. (laughs) Yeah. So it could be worse, you know. Um, Preaching is a really important job, but not an easy one. And Peter has just delivered a sermon that would go down in all of history. It really would. We're talking about it this morning. It was given over 2,000 years ago. 
And, and I, I want to talk a little bit about the sermon itself and just pull out a few points out of there. But first of all, I just want to talk about Peter himself, the man himself. Um, because actually, it's a miracle within itself that Peter is here in this moment. It really is. Literally just 50 days before, 50 days before, five, zero days before this moment, Peter has probably had the worst, most humiliating, gut-wrenching, horrible moment of his life in that he denied Jesus, probably the most public and historic denial of Jesus ever in history. And Peter was that guy. Um, All throughout the gospel accounts, we see that when you read through the gospels, Peter is like this really keen, annoying guy, right? Like he is so keen. Um, You know, you have that keen as mustard saying. Um, Peter was the guy who kind of was always first. You know, you think about the transfiguration where Jesus takes some of the disciples, he's in that inner circle of disciples, takes them up a mountain and then reveals his true identity to them. And Moses and Elijah appear. What's Peter's first response? Let me build you somewhere to stay and we can all have a chat and a cup of tea. You know, like he's so keen. Or think about uh, Jesus walking on water towards the boat and all of the disciples are there in the boat. And Peter, first one, Lord, like, let, let me walk on the water with you. Like, he's so keen. He's always the first to speak. He's the first to draw his sword and try and have a fight with people. And he's always telling Jesus about his undying, un, untainted love for him. And, you know, uh, and Jesus tells them and warns them that actually they, they will be scattered. In Matthew 26, 33, Jesus talks about how when he's taken that that actually they will scatter. And what does Peter say? He says, look, if even if all of them fall away on your account, Lord, I will never, I will never leave you. (laughs) That's that's Peter. And actually deep down, I think if you had a chat with him, he probably really believed that was true. He probably wasn't lying. He was thinking, no, I would never leave Jesus. Why would I ever do that? But yet the night Jesus is arrested... Not once, not twice, but three times he says, I don't know Jesus. Leave me alone. I don't know who you're talking about. I'm not one of his disciples. I'm not one of his followers. Leave me alone. And he denies Jesus three times. And yet 50 days later, Peter is here at the start of something new. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And who does God call to stand up in front of this crowd of thousands of people from all over the known world and to declare a new day in the kingdom of heaven? Who is it that he has to do that? Who does Jesus say that he will build his church upon? Peter. It's incredible, isn't it, how God works? And we're going to circle around to that at the end, but I just want to pull out a few of the things that Peter teaches through. So he stands up. And, uh, and some of the things that he teaches through, the first thing he needs to address is the fact that they are not drunk. It's really important that he addresses that. He says, hey, we're not drunk, by the way. And the reason he uses for that is he says, how can we be? It's only 9 a.m. Now, as I was preparing, I kind of figured this isn't, uh, this isn't something trans- that translates very well culturally. Uh, like, do you know, are you following me here? This is something then that was a good excuse that now I don't think translates very well to our culture today. Am I right in that? Like, have you ever been to the airport at seven o'clock in the morning for an early morning flight and everybody's got a beer in front of them because somehow time doesn't exist in airports, right? 
Um, you know who you are. Like, but you know, um, but they've got a glass of wine. It's like 5.30 in the morning. Like, what are you doing? Um, or, you know, just thinking about, I mean, I've met people who were just finishing drinking at nine in the morning, let alone starting. So, so the re- reality that doesn't translate, but then the Israelites would have known exactly, by the way, that's a bad thing. I'm not condoning that. I just want to make that very clear for a second. But that is our culture today we live in. Um, but, but then it would have made complete cultural sense to them. The Israelites would have known exactly what he was talking about. Um, the fact that it was only 9 a.m. was very important. Jews were permitted to drink wine generally only with meat. There was a few exceptions, especially around festivals. Um, Exodus 16 verse 8 tells us that wine had to be drunk with meat generally. That wine was generally drunk with meat. That was as they would see it, the law, in terms of how they would do it. Wine was drunk with meat, or flesh as it describes it, and bread was for the morning. So generally, not always because of festival traditions and things like that, but generally they would have bread in the morning and meat and wine would be for an evening. So he's making a reasoned argument. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Why on earth would we be drinking wine at this time? We drink that on an evening, like you, you know. Um, But it's a reasoned argument, and it's an important argument because what he's pointing out to him is what you're seeing is not ungodly behavior, but rather an act of God. That's really important that he corrects that right away. This isn't us acting ungodly, but rather God acting. And, and, And then he goes into his sermon. He corrects that. We're not drunk. But this is some things I need to communicate with you. So four things that I've picked out of this sermon that are really important to kind of understand the string of where he's going here. Um, The first thing is that Jesus, he says, is authenticated. He is authentically God. Peter points out that God has authenticated Jesus as being somebody from above. He is not another human not just another prophet, not just another king even, but rather he is from above. He is not of this world. Jesus had the ability to do what no other human in the past or in the future has ever been able to do or will ever be able to do. Jesus has a divine power that only God can possess. In verse 22, he said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Peter was saying that Jesus was not simply just healing people, right? Like we, uh, Jesus didn't just come to heal people and reverse sickness. That's not the only reason he did those things. Reversing sickness and getting rid of demons and, and performing signs is all brilliant, walking on water, turning water into wine. These are all incredible things. But he's saying, he's not just doing that for your good. Actually, God is showing you through those signs who he is, who his son is, that he is actually God. And, and actually, I could get you all pretty much up here and we could share testimonies of the signs and the wonders and the miracles and the healings that you've seen Jesus perform in your own life. Am I right? Like, Put your hand up if that's true of you. Just, you know, like you could come up. I'm not going to ask you to, but you could come up and share like, this is what Jesus did this week. This is what I've seen God do in my life through, through the power of Jesus. And actually, those tell us something about Jesus himself. All those things tell us about who he is, that he is actually God. And they authenticate that he is God. That actually, when we pray in the name of Jesus, 
and money appears in the bank that we're desperate for, or, or, or miracles show up, or we have chance encounters which we couldn't believe, or there's a breakthrough in a relationship, or there's forgiveness received that we never thought that would ever come. Actually, it authenticates that Jesus is God. It's not just about the thing that happens. It's about authenticating who Jesus is. Are you with me? Okay, good. Okay, so that's the first thing he says. He's authentically God. He is God. Second thing he says is that he was crucified. He was crucified. This is the second thing he wants to point out to them. This man, verse 23, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, not you, I'm not pointing at you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. And I just want you to picture, just picture Peter. He, he kind of stands up, perhaps he stands on a table or something outside or on a cart or sits on a donkey just so he's a little bit elevated above people. And you can imagine the people in the crowd that are there. He's, he's addressing them as people who've come from outside of Jerusalem and in, but also the people who were in Jerusalem. And he's saying, and he's pointing out to them, you can, and he's saying, think about the miracles that he did upon, uh, among you and how that authenticated that he is God. And you can imagine them sat there going, yes. Like even today in our church, we go, yes. Like Jesus does answer my prayers. He does come through. He does give me what I need. He's saying he's authenticated. And lots of people in the crowd would have been nodding and saying, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about, Peter. But at the same time, he points out that some of the people who were there were also in the crowd in Pilate's court shouting, crucify him, crucify him, kill him. And what he's pointing out to them is, look, some of you were there. Some of the, you were the people who teamed up with those wicked men, the Sanhedrin, <laughs> the religious elite, and you had him killed and the, and the Roman authorities, and you killed our Messiah. But what he points out is this was all God's plan. God had knowledge of this. Jesus himself told the disciples, not three times, he told them what was going to happen. They didn't quite get it, but he told them, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be taken. I'm going to be a lamb to the slaughter. And, and, and Jesus knew, God knew. And actually, Peter's pointing out that that is exactly what needed to happen. But third, third point is that despite the fact that Jesus was killed, Jesus was resurrected. Verse 24, he says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold of him. I love that line, by the way. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So just like God had a deliberate plan and purpose for Jesus to be killed on the cross, God again was the one who was in control all along because God raised Jesus from the dead. And by acknowledging that it was God's plan, he also authenticates furthermore who Jesus was by pointing out the, that his authenticity by the fact that actually it was impossible for death to hold Jesus. He wasn't a mere man. He was God. And it was impossible for the grave to hold him. Any other man, yeah, the grave, of course, has power over that person, but not Jesus. And, and in the crowd, there were people there who knew and had seen the risen Jesus. There was at least 120 that were told. And no doubt there was many, many more who had seen the risen Jesus. And they were there and they could testify about meeting with the risen Jesus. And then, and then finally, 
in Acts, in Acts 1, we read, didn't we, that Jesus ascended. It's so important. Finally, number four is fourth point. Jesus ascended. The disciples had spent time with the risen Jesus, seen him, eaten with him. He, they were taught by him. But then, uh, then he was ascended to be by the Father's side. And that is something that only the Messiah could do, only the Son of Man. Verse 33 says, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. You know, the Son of Man was the most common name that Jesus used throughout the Gospels to refer to himself. The Son of Man, did you know that? He, he referred to himself constantly as that, not very often as anything else, actually. And, and, and why does Jesus do that? Well, because in calling himself the Son of Man, it's quite a strange name, isn't it? But he was, he was bringing in all sorts of nuances and deeper meanings that he wanted people to understand who he was and what his role was. Now, it doesn't make much sense to us today, but for those who were steeped in the Hebrew Bible would have understood exactly who Jesus was referring to himself as. In Daniel chapter 7, um, we, we read about this dream that Daniel has. And this is where the Son of Man name comes from, this, this prophecy. It says, as I looked, this is Daniel's dream, by the way. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days, that's Yahweh, another name for God himself, Father God, he took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. His hair, the hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 ten times 10,000 stood before him. The crowd was seated and the books were opened. Then I, sorry, the court was seated and, and, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the, the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and the body was destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. He's referring to earthly kingdoms here. This is the important part. This is where the Messiah comes into it. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached <laughs> the Ancient of Days. He approached God himself and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every, everybody say that word, Say it louder. Every la language. What happens here at Pentecost? Languages. Every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And Peter's pointing out to everybody in the crowd in this moment, he is the son of man. He is the one prophesied. Every language will worship him. Every, when, when he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that's exactly what's happened. Jesus has, has ascended to be at the right hand of God, and now he sits in that ultimate place of authority and power. And look, I could have spent hours and hours picking away at the sermon of Peter. 
Um, and we could have gone into the references and all different types of things, but that's the main string. That's the backbone of what he's teaching the crowd in Israel. And how will they respond to that sermon? Well, we're going to talk about that next week. But what I want to talk about right now is how are you going to respond to these truths? How are you going to respond to them? The first thing I want to talk about real quick to finish is talk about Peter. You know, Peter found himself just 50 days, 50 days before that night Jesus was arrested. He went from being full of pride that night to the Passover meal um, to the Passover meal where he denies Jesus three times. He denies Jesus three times. And can you imagine that evening how lonely Peter felt? Just, just try and imagine it for a moment. Just being so keen, so desperate to please Jesus, so willing to follow him. And yet that night, he denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Can you imagine the feeling? Have you ever done something so desperately bad? And the feeling that sits on you, even the next morning you wake up and you think about what's happened. And then all that guilt and shame and just runs back into you. Can you just imagine how Peter felt? The unbelievable guilt, the loneliness, the sadness, the emptiness he would have felt. And yet in that place of despair, of no hope, he has an encounter with the risen Jesus. And on a beach, Jesus lovingly restores him. And for the three times that Jesus denies him, sorry, Peter denies Jesus, Jesus gives Peter three opportunities to tell him that he loves him. Three times to counteract the three times Peter's denied him. Isn't that just amazing? And then just as I was preparing for this morning, I just felt God give me a word. I just felt God was saying, actually, that there's people who are going to be here this morning who actually feel like they're maybe too far gone. Maybe you've been for a long time a follower of Jesus, but like Peter, but perhaps in the last few weeks, few months, few years, you've just wandered. And maybe you just feel a sense of guilt or loneliness this morning. Let me tell you, his love is so vast. We've been singing about it this morning. So vast, so wide, so deep. He came to have a relationship with you and he's okay with you not being perfect. You don't have to be fixed or brilliant to come to Jesus. Peter was at the bottom rock bottom, he couldn't imagine being any lower. He'd publicly humiliated himself. He denied his saviour. And yet an encounter with the risen Jesus, everything changed. And 50 days later, God uses him to birth the church. He uses him as his mouthpiece. Let me tell you really, really clearly, do not allow guilt, shame, even the things that you know deep down inside that don't please God to prevent you from allowing God to work in your life.
The enemy wants you to believe you're not good enough to come to him, to be used by him. It's not true. Here's the answer to your problem. You won't defeat addiction on your own. You won't defeat anything on your own. It's only him, only him. He's the only one who will make things right. And when you come to him and accept him as your Lord and Savior, you find forgiveness and healing and you are washed as white as snow and you have a promise of eternity with him forever. It doesn't matter what you do. It's all about him and what he's done. I just felt it was so important for this morning. And maybe you listen to Peter's story and you really resonate with it. You really feel Peter's pain. You think, if only I was a better person, <laughs> God could use me more. That's not true. Peter will tell you that. He just wants you as you are, humbly coming to him, allowing him to use you. The next thing I just want to quickly finish with is, and Graham Band are going to come back up, is just to say, perhaps listening to Peter's word and the string from his sermon, you're hearing that. You're hearing that. And actually, you think, wow, who is this Jesus? Authentically God. He died so that your sin may be taken away. He rose again so that you can have life and life to the full, always in the presence of the Father for all eternity. And he ascended at the right hand of the Father so that you can know he has all authority and all power. And he is for you. He loves you and wants relationship with you. And if you've never responded to that before, if you'd heard about Jesus but never understood the, the, the meaning of him being here, his earthly ministry, let me tell you, it was for you. It was for you. And like Peter, the man who could do it all but in the end could do nothing, <laughs> he, he has a plan for your life and he wants to use you for the goodness of his kingdom. And he's asking you to give your life to him this morning. So we're going to respond as a church. I'm going to invite Phil uh, to come up and lead us in a time of response. And I want to encourage every single one of us to respond, even if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. Uh, but Phil's going to lead us in response now. This is the day God wants to speak to you. Amen. <laughs>